You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, Not literally, I know that we're in the middle of November, but in our study of Matthew's Gospel, we have come to the passage in which the events of Palm Sunday are described. And I went back and looked, and in the last six years, we've never actually preached a Palm Sunday sermon here. So we're going to do it today, even if it's in the middle of autumn. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 21. And today we come to a really significant moment in the life of the Lord Jesus and in this book. Because today's passage marks the beginning of the end of Matthew's gospel, as Jesus finally comes to Jerusalem to begin his last week, which will, of course, culminate in his death and resurrection. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus openly declares himself to be the Messiah, the ultimate, long-promised king of Israel. And the way that Jesus does this, I think, is going to teach us some really important truths about him and his mission, and it's going to remind us of some of the most important themes that we've seen in this book. And I think it's also going to really clearly challenge us to ask some questions about ourselves as to who is this Jesus and how should we respond to him. So today we're going to look at the first 17 verses in this chapter, and we're going to have four points this morning. First, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messianic King who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. Second, we're going to ask, who is this King Jesus? Third, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over how God is worshipped. And then fourth, we're going to ask, how should we respond to King Jesus? So let's start with our first point, which is that Jesus is the Messianic King who fulfills the prophecies of the Old Testament. You remember over the last few weeks, we've seen that Jesus is on the road. He has left Galilee, where he grew up and where he's been ministering, and he's heading for Jerusalem, where he's going to meet his destiny. And now he's really close. Last week's passage ended with Jesus outside Jericho, which is about a day away from Jerusalem. But as we begin today, we read this in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and we'll stop there. Now, the Mount of Olives is a pretty small mountain by American standards, uh, and it's very close to Jerusalem. It's less than two miles away. But the Mount of Olives affords some really beautiful views of the city. And even if you've never been to Jerusalem, I can guarantee that you have seen these views, because almost every picture of Jerusalem that's taken is taken from the Mount of Olives. That's how good of a vantage point it is. Now, if you're familiar with the skyline of Jerusalem today, you'll know that the most prominent feature is the Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock. But 2,000 years ago, on that same site sat Herod's Temple, the 36-acre center of the Jewish religion. And it was adorned with gold. It would have shimmered fabulously in the sun. You might remember we said last week that Jesus and his disciples are traveling with a bunch of pilgrims, thousands of pilgrims, who have come from Galilee, and they're heading to Jerusalem because the Passover is about to be celebrated. And for these pilgrims, the temple was where they were heading. And you can imagine, as they come to the peak of the Mount of Olives and look out and see it, they would have been so excited. 
But Jesus has some other things on his mind. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the Mount of Olives was home to a few very small villages, one of which was called Bethany. We'll see that at the end of our passage. And the other was called uh, Bethphage. And as they approached Bethphage, Jesus stopped and he gave an assignment to two of his disciples. Look at verse 1. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. What we see here is a stunning display of Jesus' sovereignty and his omniscience. Jesus knows exactly what his disciples are going to find when they come into this village. They're going to find exactly two donkeys, one older and one younger. They're going to be tied up, and they're going to belong to some owner who is content to let them go when he's told the Lord needs them. And that's a really interesting comment, isn't it? The Lord needs them. Because in context here, it sure looks like Jesus is calling himself the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, that's a title that's only used to speak of God. And this is interesting because we've seen for much of his ministry, Jesus was content to reveal himself very directly only to a handful of people. But now things are different. Now is the time for Jesus to be very open and clear about who he is. We've seen in this book that Jesus is the one who wields the very power of God. Jesus does what the Old Testament says only God can do. He creates. He walks on water. He stills storms. And now he says it himself. He is truly the Lord. And as for this prediction, this is not some lucky guess. Jesus knows what they're going to find. And it's not just that he passively knows about it. No, friends, Jesus knows this because this has been planned from before the foundation of the world. Okay, the God who Matthew 10 says is sovereign over the lifespan of every little bird. The God who is sovereign over how many hairs you have on your head, Jesus said there, is certainly sovereign over the events on that day of prophetic fulfillment. And that's why Jesus wants these donkeys. Because of biblical prophecy. Look at verse 4. We read, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Probably the central theme of this whole book from the beginning is that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and promises of the Old Testament. Now, that's a theme we haven't talked about a lot in recent weeks, but it was really dominant in the early chapters of this book, you might remember. After all, the book starts with a genealogy showing that Jesus is the heir of David and Abraham. And very early on, Jesus himself says this in chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. We've seen a lot of examples of that in this book. And now Matthew picks this theme of fulfillment back up, and he's going to run with it right through the end of the book. And what we're told here is Jesus' actions here fulfill prophecy from the Old Testament. And we have a quotation here, and it actually comes from two passages. 
The first is Isaiah 62, verse 11, which says, The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Isaiah says, a figure will come to Jerusalem bringing salvation and justice. And here he is. It's Jesus. But the second prophecy tells us even more about Jesus and his coming to Jerusalem. And this is the one that we read earlier today. It's from Zechariah chapter 9. I love Zechariah 9. It's, it's an amazing chapter. And the idea in Zechariah 9 is there's this comparison between two kings. The first eight verses of Zechariah 9 predict the coming of a great warrior who's going to destroy all of these cities, but he's not going to destroy Jerusalem. And based on the description of this king's campaign, it seems pretty clear that this is a prophecy about Alexander the Great, right? The, maybe the greatest general of all time. But Zechariah then immediately provides a contrast to Alexander. Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's another king. He's not like Alexander, arrogant and powerful and warlike. Rather, Zechariah says to the Jews, this is your king, not that Gentile warlord. And your king's coming to you, Jerusalem, and you should receive him with joy because the character of his reign is not war, it is not conquest, but it is righteousness. It is salvation. How often do we have politicians that we can say, wow, their reign is characterized by righteousness. Here's one, it's Jesus, but he's not a politician. And he's not a warrior. But he is in some ways, but he's not coming into town on a war horse or a chariot, we're told. He comes rather in humility. He comes on a donkey. You read the Old Testament and some other ancient documents, you'll see many times ancient kings ride on a donkey in times of peace. And we're told this king is going to speak peace. And he's not just going to speak peace to Israel. He's going to speak peace to the nations. If you ever have a chance, you should look at a map of Alexander's empire. It was really big. This king's going to have a bigger empire. He's going to have one that rules the whole earth. That's what Zechariah says. So this passage tells us how the Messiah will appear in Jerusalem. He's going to ride a donkey. And here is Jesus. It's him. And, and that's what he says. It's time for me to ride a donkey, so go get him. So the disciples do. Look at verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Everything was just like Jesus predicted. So they get the donkey, but he doesn't come on his own. He is so young, it seems that his mother wants to come with him. But no matter, the disciples are content to put cloaks on both animals. And Jesus gets up to ride. Most likely he's just riding on the younger one when we look at all the Gospels. But what do we see here? What does this first point tell us? Friends, one more time we see how the prophecies of the Old Testament point to Jesus. And we see here 
that Jesus deliberately chooses to fulfill this prophecy as his story begins to draw to a close. And he does this to reveal himself very clearly to the people of Jerusalem. He is now openly saying, that's me, I'm the Messiah. But friends, not only does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament, but I think here we also see how the Old Testament helps us better understand Jesus. Because these prophecies tell us what kind of a king Jesus is. You know, in the first century, the Jewish people wanted an Alexander-type figure. Somebody that's going to smash Rome. Somebody that's going to make them the head of the nations. But Jesus hasn't come to crush the Gentiles in his first, king, in his first appearance. No, he's come to speak peace to the nations. And friends, this is an important point. From a worldly perspective, Jesus' kingship is not a desirable kingship. What kind of leaders do we like? I mean, usually we like warriors, right? We want somebody that's going to get our enemies. We want somebody brash and arrogant and aggressive. In our world, leaders who talk about peace are often associated with weakness in our minds. Think about those guys in the 30s who appeased Hitler, right? That's not a good association. But friends, Jesus, though he is the Prince of Peace, is not weak. Jesus is almighty. And indeed, friends, one day Jesus will conquer the nations. One day, Psalm 2 says, he will break them with a rod of iron. In fact, in the end, that's how ultimate peace will be had. Jesus will end all sin and rebellion in this world. But in his first appearing, he comes with humility. The same humility we saw last week that he commands of us. Not insisting on self, but willing to serve others. Now, in our world, again, we're told this is weakness, but it's not. It took tremendous self-control and strength for Jesus to have this kind of humility, to be willing to lessen himself in the ways that we've talked about, where he took on humanity and submitted himself to death and to death on a cross. It takes great strength to say, I'm not just going to do what I want to do, but I'm going to submit to the Father. And friends, Jesus had that kind of strength. He obeyed the Father perfectly. And so he enters Jerusalem, not with guns ablazing. No, he comes to lay down his life as a ransom for many, just like he said. He comes to bring us peace with the Father. He comes to inaugurate a kingdom, which is not simply another political unit on a map, but he brings the rule of God, which bursts forth into this world, one soul at a time, as people bend the knee to Jesus. That's what he has come to secure, and that's what his entry is all about. But we come now to our second point, which is, who is this King Jesus? All right, so Jesus now resumes his journey, and picture it. There's these thousands of pilgrims walking towards the gate of Jerusalem on foot. And suddenly they notice somebody's riding in their midst. And he's riding on a donkey, like Zechariah 9. And who is this figure? Well, it's Jesus. And we've seen before, this crowd knew who Jesus was. It's him, the great miracle worker, that great teacher. And as they see this, they know their Bibles. They begin to rejoice. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The pilgrims get caught up in this moment of prophetic fulfillment, and they begin to respond in ways that come from the history of Israel. Back in 2 Kings 9, a man named Jehu became king. And we read that when he did, in haste, every man of them 
took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. The idea wasn't just to protect the king's feet from dirt. No, when you use your clothes, you take them off and put them under the king. It's a symbol. I am submitting to the king. He can walk on me. And these pilgrims now make this same gesture towards Jesus. At the same time, they take branches. John's gospel talks about palm branches. And the other gospels tell us that these were waved or thrown before the donkey. Leviticus 23 talks about palm branches being used in celebration. There it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a holiday all about the end of history, looking forward to the time of prophetic fulfillment when God would dwell with man again. And we know at other points in history when the Jews believed that prophetic fulfillments were happening around them, they celebrated with palm branches. Twice, the apocryphal books of Maccabees tell us the Jews greeted Simon Maccabee with palm branches after he defeated one of their, the big enemies in Israel's history, the Seleucid Empire, after he gave Israel back its independence. And that's probably what these people expect now. Hey, it's prophetic fulfillment. Here he is. He's going to give us our independence. He's going to beat Rome. And so they wave palm branches. Verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now these crowds before and behind Jesus are the pilgrims who are coming into Jerusalem. Moreover, John's gospel tells us a few people came out of Jerusalem also to greet Jesus because they had heard that Jesus had recently raised Lazarus from the dead. And this crowd begins to shout for joy, just like Zechariah 9 said they would. And their words come from the Old Testament. Psalm 118, verse 25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this psalm is all about a time of religious celebration. A time when God has shown the light of his kindness to his people. And the result is there's this big response of praise. Now the psalm says, save us, O Lord. And that's basically what these people are saying when they say the word Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save now. Now, by the time of the first century, the word Hosanna seems to have been less a petition for salvation and more like hallelujah, just like an exclamation of praise. And yet, I think that there may still be some aspect here in which these people are asking Jesus to save them. The problem was... What they wanted saved from was not the enemy who Jesus had come to fight. They wanted saved from Rome. But Jesus has come to de defeat a much greater adversary. Jesus has come to liberate them from sin. But the people rejoice and they shout Hosanna to Jesus as the son of David. A messianic title we've seen throughout this book. See, friends, these folks get the message. They see what Jesus is doing. They say, oh, he's the Messiah. This is how we should respond. It's also clear from their blessing Jesus as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They expected someone was going to come in the name and power of God, a prophetic figure, and here he is, so they bless him. And more than that, they praise God, saying, Hosanna in the highest. Thanks be to God for sending his Messiah after all these centuries. And with this tremendous entrance, Jesus enters Jerusalem. 
Now, I want to be clear. This is not the first time in Jesus' life that he came to Jerusalem. Far from it. In Luke 2, we learn that Jesus came to Jerusalem first as a small boy. And Exodus 23 says that every Jewish man had to go to Jerusalem three times a year. Now, in Judaism, you became a man at age 13. So Jesus had probably come to Jerusalem something like at least 60 times in his life before this incident. Now, John's Gospel tells us about some of those visits. But Matthew hasn't told us about any other visits to Jerusalem. This is the only one he tells us about. And there's a reason for that. Matthew's not telling a chronological story of Jesus' life. He's telling us a geographical story about Jesus' life. He's built this story all around Jesus making a trip. It starts in Galilee, it ends in Jerusalem, and how Jesus got from Galilee to Jerusalem. So Matthew doesn't mention other trips to Jerusalem, but Jesus had been there before. But even though Jesus had been there before, he hadn't been here before like this. This was different. Because only now at the end of, the, of his life does Jesus come and say, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? You know, pilgrims had come to Jerusalem for centuries. The city was used to it. But this was different. The people weren't used to this kind of commotion. And they say, what does it mean? And Matthew highlighting this now brings us back full circle to the very start of this book. Because back at the very beginning of this book, Matthew told us about some things that happened in Jerusalem about 30 years earlier when some other people came to Jerusalem. The wise men seeking the birth of Jesus and were told in Matthew 2 verse 3 that when Herod the king heard about the birth of Jesus, he was or heard about these guys showing up, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know, Jerusalem might have been the city of God, but the people in Jerusalem were more afraid of God's prophetic fulfillment than excited by it. Because what they wanted was for life to just go on as normal and God will leave us alone. They thought when God intervened prophetically in their lives, that was something that was a scary hassle more than a reason for praise. And now 30 years later, they still have the same reaction. This ungodly, faithless, worldly city hasn't changed. And so these people are disturbed by this commotion and they inquire about it. Verse 11, and the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The pilgrims acclaim Jesus. They say he's from Galilee. Many of the pilgrims themselves were from Galilee. They might have been proud of this point, right? Oh, the Messiah is from our area. And they say Jesus is a prophet. And we'll talk about that more in just a minute. Now, in these verses, we see some different ways that people understand Jesus. And I think we're meant to ask ourselves here, how do we understand Jesus? Maybe today, we're like the people of Jerusalem were back then. We have no idea who Jesus is. Oh, we hear his name all the time being thrown around as an expletive. And we know there are some people who care a lot about Jesus. But maybe we don't really know who he is. Maybe we've even sat in church for a long time and heard a lot of stuff about Jesus and never really taken to our heart the truth about who he is. Maybe we hear about Jesus today and say, who is this? You know, tragically, over the next few days in Jerusalem, the people of that city learned about Jesus. And what they learned, they hated. They rejected Jesus. In chapter 27, we're going to see that the people who are in Jerusalem that make this query, 
say this, let him be crucified. So learning the truth about Jesus can lead to some really strong responses, including hateful rejection. And I've seen this many times. I would tell you, honestly, some of the strongest hatreds I've seen towards Jesus are people who profess faith, who claim that they're okay with God, just as those folks in Jerusalem would have claimed. But in truth, they don't actually know him. Many people, when they hear the truth about Jesus is Lord and that he has authority over our lives and that we should obey him, get very angry. And they say, I don't want to hear about Jesus. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I don't want to hear about the church. Jesus is a polarizing figure. You're either going to love him or you're going to hate him. And friend, if you don't love him, if the true Jesus of the Bible makes you angry, I want you to think about why is that? It's probably because you haven't been saved by him. But friends, you need to know this. In the end, Jesus is somebody we're all going to have to deal with because he's going to be the judge on the last day. So if you hate Jesus, you're in some trouble. If you don't know about Jesus, you better listen today and find out who he is. Now, lots of the folks on Palm Sunday say, well, Jesus is the son of David. He's a king. He's one of many kings in our history. He's another David. Other folks said, oh, he's a prophet. He's one of many prophets. He's another Elijah. Maybe some of these folks who said he's a prophet or the prophet were thinking of the prophet in Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses. But friends, Jesus isn't simply like Moses or Elijah. And we saw that back in chapter 17, right, at the Transfiguration. There was Jesus, and Moses and Elijah appeared. And Peter, seeing this, says, hey, let's worship all three of them. And a voice from the Father speaks and says, no, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The Father has spoken. Jesus isn't just another Moses or another Elijah or another David. He is not simply one in a group of many. Jesus stands alone because he is God the Son who has become a true human. As Jesus said back in verse 3, he is Lord. And that puts him in a class all by himself. He is unique in world history. He is truly man and he is also truly God. And friends, he alone brings salvation. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In Jesus alone can we have a right relationship with God. In Jesus alone can we be saved. Because Jesus has come to die for our sin. We saw, he, he said this himself last week, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He came to bear the wrath of God as our substitute on the cross, the wrath that we had earned by our sin. He came to conquer sin and death and the grave. He has come to set free a people for his own possession. And today, friends, we need to know that what Jesus says now is what he said then, which is follow me. That's what we've got to do. We've got to turn off the course that we've been heading on. We all start on the broad road that leads to destruction, chapter 7 says. We've got to turn off of that. That's called repentance. We've got to turn to Jesus. We've got to trust Jesus, who he is and what he's done for us. He says what this looks like is you've got to take up your cross. You've got to be willing to suffer the hardship of battling for holiness of being rejected and persecuted as he was. Chapter 13, he tells parables that say, it's going to cost you everything. 
It's going to cost you relationships, he warned in chapter 10. It might even cost you your life, he warned in chapter 16. But the call's the same. We've got to follow Jesus. It's a demanding claim. But Jesus is this unique king. He has the right to demand all from us. And you know what? More than that, in humility, he has given all for us. And so it's only reasonable that we should give all for him. Friends, that's who Jesus is. And Jesus now further demonstrates his identity and his authority as we come now to our third point, which is that Jesus has authority over how God is to be worshipped. So Jesus and the pilgrims have come to Jerusalem, and they proceed to the temple. Now, the temple was huge in Jesus' day. It had recently been renovated by a bad, bad guy called Herod the Great. Um, and in Herod's temple, uh, at the center was the temple building itself. And then surrounding the temple were a series of courtyards. Now, depending on who you were, you could get closer to the temple building, or you could be restricted to having to be pretty far off. If you were an able-bodied Jewish man, you could get all the way to the innermost court. Uh, if you were an able-bodied Jewish woman, you could get about halfway. And if you were a disabled Jew, or if you were a Gentile, you were restricted to the outermost court. Of course, only the, the Levitical priests, the descendants of one particular family, could enter the temple building itself. And in the temple building, there was one room called the Holy of Holies, where only one guy, the high priest, could enter on one day a year. That's because in the first temple, centuries earlier, God's presence had uniquely dwelt on earth in the Holy of Holies. But that was no longer the case by the time of this second temple. God's presence had departed during the time of Ezekiel's prophecy uh, because Israel was idolatrous. And you know, the prophets had said, one day God's presence will return. Malachi 3 says, the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. And listen what it says will happen when the Lord comes to his temple. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. He is a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. What does that mean? Malachi says when the Messiah comes, he's going to clean up worship in the temple and the priesthood. And now, friends, this prophecy has come to pass. Because here is the Lord, and he walks into his temple, and he is going to purify what is happening in that temple. Now, at the heart of the worship of the temple was the sacrifice of animals, which was required by the Old Testament law. And centuries earlier, what this looked like was this. You would have your own little farm animals, and you would raise them and feed them and take care of them. You would inspect them, and when the time came, you would travel with them to Jerusalem. By the first century, this had all changed. At this point in Jewish history, the outermost court, the one filled with Gentiles and disabled people, it had been turned into a marketplace. It was your one-stop shop for all your sacrificial needs. It was drive-through sacrifice. What happened was, first you'd go to the money changer's table, because the temple would only accept one kind of coin, and it was not in common circulation. So if you wanted to buy something at the temple, you had to exchange your money. And of course, there's a fee for that. 
Second, you'd go buy an animal. Now, of course, you could still bring your own animal from home, but if you did, it would have to be inspected. And of course, there's a fee for that. And most animals didn't get accepted. So they would take your animal, who knows, maybe they would sell it back to some other poor dupe later, and then you'd have to go buy another animal from them for which there would be a markup, including on the, the pigeons. You'll see Jesus uh, ch chases away the pigeon salesman. These pigeons were supposed to be sold to the poorest people who couldn't afford any other kind of sacrifice. They even marked that up, totally exploiting the poor and everybody else who wanted to worship God. You say, well, where'd this money go? It went to the chief priests. It went to the high priest, Caiaphas, and his father-in-law, Annas, who ran this market. Friends, this is blasphemy. The, the sacrificial system was to be solemn. Okay, when you walked that little lamb up to the altar that you had raised, and you pushed your hands on it and confessed your sin, you understood, I care about this animal, I've loved this animal, this animal represents me. And then it was killed and thrown into the fire in front of you. And you said, oh, that's what my sin deserves. And God is merciful because he took that, that substitute instead of me. That was what this was to be. And now it's become a vast exercise in commercialism. So what happens? Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple, and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus might be the humble prince of peace, but he is zealous for his father's house, and he will not stand silent in the face of this desecration. So he shuts down the market. This is probably not the first time Jesus had done this. The beginning of John's gospel, we read that Jesus cleansed the temple at the very beginning of his ministry. Now he does it again at the end of his ministry. And I think that these are two separate events because there are a few differences in the way that they're reported. But as Jesus now cleanses the temple again, he explains why he does this. Look at verse 13. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus again quotes two passages from the Old Testament. The first is Isaiah 56, 7, which says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. This was to be a place of worship. But the second passage reveals the problem. As Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. The context of that prophecy is very interesting. Jerusalem's filled with sin, and the people believe they are immune from God's judgment because the temple is in their midst. And they think, well, hey, we're going to get away with this because God can't judge us. It would mean destroying his temple. And in that context, Jeremiah says, you've made this into a den of robbers. You can't get away with this. Now, as Jesus quotes this passage here, I think we get a sense of his objection. These priests and such thought that because they claimed the name of God, because they had a temple in his name, that whatever they did was permissible, that God wouldn't judge their blasphemy. But they have become robbers. In fact, the word Jesus uses here doesn't just mean a robber. Usually, this word means a nationalistic revolutionary. See, the temple was to these people not just a way of making money. This was the source of their identity. This was all about their national pride. Their religion was no longer about God and atoning for sin. No, it was a political and a nationalistic statement. 
the temple goes on and Israel goes on because we're Israel. They didn't care about God. And by the way, we're getting rich. And Jesus sees this and he won't have it. Now what should we take from this? Well, I think here we see Jesus making another claim of authority. He is the Lord, and he is not going to let the temple be desecrated like this. It's supposed to shock the people who saw it. But Jesus isn't doing stuff because it's going to have good PR. He does what the Father wants. And what's happening in the temple displeases the Father. Moreover, Jesus, by doing this, shows himself to be the arbiter of what pleases God in worship, not the religious leaders of Israel. He is the Lord of worship. And friends, we need to know Jesus won't put up with false, hollow worship. If you come to church and you come with your heart far from God and you say, well, you know what, I still sang the songs and I kind of listened to the sermon and, you know, I wasn't into it or worse, I really didn't want to be here. You're not doing yourself any good, right? If you're harboring evil in your heart and you go through the motions, our worship's not only unacceptable to God, it disgusts him. Uh, you have questions about that. I'm not going to read it. Go read Isaiah 1. I mean, okay, I will read some of it. Uh, your, your feasts my soul hates. Who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. But friends, more broadly, we need to know that, that the worship Jesus wants from us today is not fixated on a building or a particular gathering. Of course, we should gather regularly. We know that. Hebrews 10 says that. But God wants more than just an hour or two from you on Sunday morning. Romans 12 says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Today, God doesn't want from us an animal sacrifice. He wants us to give him ourselves, our lives, our thoughts, our actions, all the time. He wants us always living to please him. That is the worship he requires. And he's able to require that today because worshiping him does not mean that we have to go to one particular place on earth. See, in the Old Testament, the temple was the center of worship because the temple was where heaven met earth. Today, heaven doesn't meet earth in a building. Today, heaven meets earth in the person of Jesus. That's why in John 2, Jesus talks about his own body being the temple. Or he says in Matthew 12, 6, something greater than the temple is here. We meet with God today through Jesus himself. And friends, if you know Jesus, you've got access to a higher form of worship and a better temple than anything Israel had. And so friends, we need to take every thought captive. We've got to stop saturating our minds with the stuff of the world and the flesh and the devil. Stuff that ticks us off or that makes us lustful or covetous. We need to think about the things that are above, of Christ and his word and his commands. We need to live in line with them. Friend, what today would Jesus ask you to give up? What is obstructing your ability to do this? What threatens to take your mind captive and turn it away from loyalty to Christ? Now look, I'm not saying let's withdraw from the world. We live in the world. We're always going to be tempted by the world to various degrees. But where are you deliberately letting it get in? Where do you find yourself wanting to buy what the world is selling? In this season of the year, are you fixated on the news? Giving yourself more to your favorite politicians than the Lord? Christmas is coming. The commercials know it. It's time to buy and sell. 
Are you deadening your mind with endless, mindless entertainment? Are you deliberately wallowing in filth? I'm not just talking about what's on a screen. There's plenty of it on the radio. Friend, turn away from whatever is beckoning you to turn away from Christ and that you feel yourself wanting to go. We've got to renew our minds. We've got to walk as Christ walked in holiness and obedience to the Father. And I've got to do this too, friends. We've all got to fight constantly. And sometimes we fail, but we've got to pick ourselves up and continue. But this leads to our last point, which is how should we respond to Jesus? He's come to the temple. He's cleansed the temple courts, but he's not done. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. Now Jesus is in the outer court where the market was, and this is where the disabled were. And these folks start to congregate around Jesus. You know, the disabled were barred from coming closer to the temple, not because God said so. Rather, 2 Samuel 5, 8 says that King David had a hateful prejudice against the disabled. But here's Jesus, David's son. David's Lord, we'll see in the next chapter. And as he has just shown, things are going to change around the temple. And the disabled draw near to him. Guess what? Jesus shows he has a very different view of disabled people than David did. In his love and compassion, he receives them. Just as he said in chapter 18, we should lovingly serve and receive others. And you know, these disabled folks came with great faith. They thought, maybe Jesus wants to help me. Maybe Jesus will help me. And so they came to him. And what did they find? This king who opposes the proud and wicked gives grace to the lowly and humble. Verse 14 says, and he healed them. Now this is the last healing miracle we find in this book. And friends, what we see here is really significant. Jesus just quoted Isaiah 56, that the temple is to be a house of prayer for all people. Just like in, in Acts 17, Paul says, God calls upon all people everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. What's all people mean? All people means all people. Able-bodied or disabled. It means Jew or Gentile. Black or white. Asian or Hispanic. Men or women. See, this idea from the Old Testament of limited access to God is now being rolled back. Access to God is not just going to be for the high priest on one day a year. Because when Jesus dies, that, that curtain in the temple that separated everybody from the Holy of Holies is going to be shredded. The order of sacrifice isn't just only going to be for Jewish able-bodied men anymore. No, everyone can approach the cross and enter into a relationship with God. And it's all because of Jesus. But look at verse 15. As Jesus heals these folks, when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Jesus does wondrous things here. Stunning miracles. Any honest person would have been filled with praise to the God in whose temple they were. And indeed, there were children present. And i got to tell you one thing about kids. They don't have a filter. Whatever they think, they just say. They don't have an agenda, right? And these kids see what's happened, and they're like, wow, praise God, right? They take up the cry that had been echoing in the streets earlier. Hosanna to the Son of David. Praise to God. Praise to the Messiah. What a sincere and honest response. But in contrast to that, Matthew tells us about another response. That of the chief priests, the leaders of the temple, and the leaders of the scribes. The last time we actually saw the chief priests and scribes was back in chapter 2. When they collaborated with King Herod and arranged a mass murder that tried to kill Jesus. 
That's pretty evil, right? Here we are a generation later. Have they changed? Well, three times in this book, Jesus says they're going to kill me too. They're still evil a generation later, and here they are. And look at their evil hearts. They see these wonders. They hear children praising Jesus. They hear the God they claim to worship being praised because his miraculous power was used in this mighty deed of compassion. And they get angry. Verse 16, and they said to him, Do you hear what they're saying? The children say, Hosanna to the son of David. They say, Hey, Jesus, tell them to shut up. Tell them you're not the Messiah. Don't accept their praise. But how can he? He's come and declared himself to be the king. He's accepted the praise of the pilgrims. And he isn't going to turn away kids. Because we saw in chapters 18 and 19, he said we should receive little children. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, right? Verse 16, and Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you prepared praise? Jesus rebukes these guys. What's happening here isn't wrong. It's biblical. Jesus says, don't you know that? Haven't you read the Psalms? This is Psalm 8 too. Little children. We've read so much about little children recently, right? A picture of humility erupting in praise. Jesus says, this is biblical. And by the way, guys, this praise doesn't originate with them. Because Psalm 8 too says that praise has been prepared by you, by the Father. The Father put this praise in these children's mouths. So how can Jesus silence it? That would be sin. So he totally owns the chief priests and scribes. And Matthew doesn't tell us what they think about it. He doesn't need to. Jesus wins this round with this mic drop moment, right? What else is there to say? And having concluded this exchange, verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jerusalem had so many pilgrims, you couldn't sleep in Jerusalem. You had to go outside to find like an inn, and then you'd come back during the day. So Jesus has to stay in one of the little towns outside Jerusalem. But he'll come back and deal with these religious leaders more, we'll see, next week. But what I want to ask as our conclusion now is this. How do we respond to Jesus? Back in chapter 7, we saw there's only two paths. We can build our life on Jesus and have a sure foundation, a solid rock of a foundation, or we can reject Jesus and our lives are built on disaster. Friend, what is your response? Today, you have heard who Jesus is. He is the king who has come to die and rise to bring salvation. He is the king who demands we put him above all else. He is the king who says we must turn from our sin and follow him wherever he leads. When you hear this, do you get mad? Who is Jesus to tell me my life needs to change? Who is Jesus that tells me I need to turn away from my sin? Who is Jesus to tell me he should be first in my life? that's you, be warned. You're like these false religious leaders. And next week, Jesus is going to tell them they're in danger of hell. No, friends, we need to be like the other people in this passage. We need to be like the disabled people here who drew near to Jesus because our sin has made us unwell. It has condemned us to death. We need Jesus to heal us. We need to be like these children who cry, Hosanna to Jesus. We need to say to Jesus, save us now. And friends, if we delight in Jesus, if we want to praise Jesus today because of all he's done for us, we need to recognize that is a work of God. That praise comes from the Father in our lives, and it shows that he is at work in us, and he is sanctifying us, and he is making us more like his son. And that should make us want to praise him all the more in word and in thought and in deed because that's the true worship that Jesus requires.
So today, may we acclaim Jesus. May we bless him because he is the one who has come in the name of the Lord. May we build our lives upon him, and may we follow him down the narrow road that leads to eternal life, wherever it may take us.